Are you truly involved in the developer communities you work in and sell to? Are you seeing the value in the events that you are a part of? DevRelate.io can help. Developer and community relations is a service. We speak developer. Learn more at DevRelate.io or email us at info at DevRelate.io. to Greater Than Code number 121. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I am here today with my co-host, Sam Livingston Gray. Yay, and I'm here to introduce the marvelous John Sowers. Thank you, Sam. And I'm here to introduce our guest, Ty Wood. Ty helps teams build more resilient systems and improve their ability to respond to incidents. He's a former EMT and applies his experience managing emergency situations along with technical skills to solve problems. When not doing computer stuff, he's probably riding around Vegas on his motorcycle. He also writes a weekly newsletter at resilientroundup.com. Welcome to the show, Ty. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for coming, Ty. For those of y'all who don't know, I met Ty last year at the best conference, redeploy.io where we were talking about resilience engineering in software. What's resilience engineering? What I got from what I also think is the best conference is that resilience engineering is this intersection of a lot of uh, disciplines that have been going on for a while in like cognitive systems engineering, human factors, and taking the things from those domains and applying them to others. Including software? Especially at, <laughs> at Redeploy, yes. But also domains like, um, well, the obvious ones like nuclear engineering and air traffic control, where we get to like really study safety. Yeah, resilience engineering is a pretty new field. In software, I think our major interface to this new discipline is John Alsbaugh, and he's been on the show before. But I was talking to him in New York the other day at DevOps Days New York, and he was telling me about how... David Woods and Richard Cook, who are two professors known for their work in resilience engineering, they kind of spun off of human factors research and brought in the cognitive systems work, right? That sounds right to me. From what I've, I know of talking to Richard, I think uh, their laboratory at Ohio State is the uh, cognitive systems engineering laboratory, as I recall. And I think this this differs from old style human factors. So old style human factors gets mired in like Taylorism and let's control the people. Whereas cognitive systems is like, let's make the systems work with the people the way people work. Right. Yeah, as opposed to let's hit the people with wet noodles until they can bend to the system. Let's make the system so that it supports the people and the work as it actually occurs, as opposed to the way we hope it occurs or the way we imagine it occurs. Yeah. And software totally plays into that because software is so much of the systems that we live and work in. So how did you get into this? I started getting into this when I moved from being an EMT. Early in my career, I'd taken a break from tech and spent some time in emergency medicine. And when I, I returned to tech, I was seeing a lot of overlap in the things that I'd learned in managing medical emergencies and seen in ERs and things like that that could be applied to software. Digging into it more, uh, I was able to discover some of the stuff. And then it really came together for me in the conference and talking to John and Richard and reading David's work. 
Yeah, our uh, QA manager uh, used to be a firefighter and EMT and has brought a lot of that to their work as well, which is really interesting. That we actually had a whole team sort of training on closed loop communication so that when we're managing incidents or, or handing things off, we make sure we get that going. Did you find that? What I gathered from it, and perhaps, Ty, you can dive into it a little bit more, is like when you say, hey, we just rebooted the database, someone acknowledges, oh, the database was rebooted. I have marked down in our log that the database was rebooted rather than just sort of shouting into the void and hoping everyone noticed that that's what happened. Yeah, I really like that part as well. It was a big change for me coming back into it where that does seem to be the norm in a lot of different mediums, right? You could post something in Slack and maybe everyone will hear you, but no one will acknowledge it. And then so you're kind of left sitting there. You're like, uh, anyone? Bueller? Bueller? So you're saying there the norm a- in our software teams is to just say something and then not wait for acknowledgement? That's the result, I think, because the norm is not to focus on closing that loop and and not to enhance the communication. Because we think communication is message passing instead of a process. Because we don't think communication is a skill that you can actually study and improve and work on. There was a tweet recently about someone who is, she's a, I'm married to a pilot. And every time he hands me the baby, he says, you have control. And if I don't say I have control, he doesn't let go. <laughs> that's amazing i love that yeah my partner and i used to do something similar we would say you have the con because we watch a lot of star trek but you know (laughs) we weren't quite that formal about it my youngest daughter her nickname was Dieter, so we would say i'm on Dieter duty and then chase her around uh sweet so yeah we, we don't do that in our teams like i made a pull request yesterday and i have a bunch of work i have like Look at all this these arrow thingies on my piece of paper. Um, I have a bunch of work waiting on this pull request to get approved. And I come in this morning, and of course, it's just sitting there. So I ask someone else to review it. And then they do, and they're like, okay, it looks good. And then the first person is like, oh, no, I'll review it later. And I'm like, I'm never going to get anywhere on this. Okay, thank you for letting me rant about that. It is, though, we, we don't uh, have these traditions of careful communication. It sounds like we're talking about how formal we choose to be. I think for me, that's a part of it. I think the formality can come in in a few different places, right? We can be formal in the patterns we use for our communication, as in we can be very formal in saying, well, I will always acknowledge when you say something. But the content of the message, I think, could be formal or informal. That's true, because you could say, yo, I got that. With my kids, I've learned to just repeat back what they said so that they know I heard them because otherwise they will say it again and again and again. <laughs> Good training, actually. So, so what else? What else do you bring back from EMT days to uh, software teams? With the sort of emergency responder world, there's actually, you know, a lot of talk during your training, during all these things about burnout, you know, what it looks like, uh, what resources are available. And and even in some places where there's kind of a culture of, of not really uh, acknowledging that, it's something that was completely lacking when I, I returned to software. You know, there are high consequence incidents and companies and these things and people are are carrying these pagers and subjected to a lot of the same stressors and end up having a lot of the same problems or or results but in software it's not really talked about that much one of the agencies i worked for uh, when i was in medicine we had a, a staff psychologist and that was a thing she was great and was a part of you know the company and she would show up on 
uh, you know, your initial training day and you met who she was and, and different things like that. But, you know, I've never heard of, you know, tech companies having really one of those, you know, ping pong tables. Sure. Eight kinds of coffee. Yeah. Mental health support. Not so much. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've been at places that have um, like a nurse's station, a little tiny doctor office, but uh, a psychologist, that would be useful. And what you're talking about is that in emergency services, you acknowledge that the workers are human and support them. Absolutely. Yeah. But you see, ping pong tables and coffee are cheap, fixed expenses. If you want to bring in a psychologist, then you have to like pay for somebody with a PhD and acknowledge that your people are human. It's terrible. I think that it's probably the latter uh, that makes it more difficult is acknowledging that the people are human if uh, the spending of large tech companies yeah. <laughs> shows. And I, I don't know if it's the dollar amount expense so much as that. You'd have to acknowledge that you know some of these kind of traditions or norms that exist in software are maybe not healthy. And just overcoming that sense of you know, this is how we do things. And, and that kind of uh, inertia was, is hard to fight, I think. Do we have expectations that people will behave like computers and do what they're told, like consistently? Yeah, right. I mean, that's more automation, right? Just just automate that away or just write better playbooks, right? Just that's... Oh, yeah. It's in the readme. You're a human. You, you can run a readme. All right. So for better or worse, now I'm thinking about professionalization and how tech is still very permeable. It's very accessible to people who don't have formal education in computer science. You can sort of stumble into a career in tech and have that totally be a thing. Um, whereas I'm guessing that to be an EMT, you have to go through a fair amount of formal training. I think it could be. I don't know that it's the formal training that helps. I mean, I suppose that does give a certain amount of common ground. But interestingly, when you finish, uh, like when you're officially certified at the federal level, and they're like, yes, you're an EMT of, of whatever standard you've, you've certified to, there are several now, or I think they merged them. But you still, oftentimes when you join an agency, you still spend a couple of weeks at least doing more training with a field training officer. So it's like school training, even though it has like practicums and clinical hours, are mostly so that you can kind of do this this base level work and then you learn a lot of other things in the field. Yeah, like no degree is going to prepare you for what software development really requires. They don't even teach version control. Ah. I think that that is true, yeah, and it, it does work in, I think, in a lot of cases, right? I, I don't imagine that there are a lot of careers that you could walk out of any sort of certification or with a degree and be prepared to do the thing in the real world. I don't imagine that lawyers graduate law school and then are instantly prepared to, you know, do well for their clients. Yes, yes. That is something that our culture like doesn't acknowledge very well because we think we need to retrain people, right? You come out of the coal mines and you need to be retrained into a different field. But training is never it never prepares you to do the work. It never gives you the context and the understanding and like that kind of in-place contextual know-how. For that, you have to give people a chance. You have to bring them in and you have to work alongside someone to understand the work. And so this is where you get like internships and stuff like that. And if you can afford to do unpaid internships, you can get into whole fields that you wouldn't be able to break into otherwise. Because training is, I love what you you said about the formal training gives you common ground. It gives you a shared vocabulary. 
It gives you stuff that we all know, that we all know, that we all know, that we all know this stuff because we all took this training. But that's it. Which is not to dismiss that. That stuff is necessary. It's it's sort of below baseline, but it's part of the baseline. Right. It gives it gives you like a shared vocabulary so that you can work alongside someone and more quickly transfer the knowledge and know-how that's really needed to do that particular job. So how do we do that in our software teams? I think you touched on part of it is just acknowledging that that's going to be the case instead of kind of having this idea that, oh, you know, you did a number of years of, of computer science. That means you can you know, function in this team or, or this organization. And that, you know, may not be the case. And I think that touches back on what we were talking about before, about the work as we want it to be or the work as we imagine it to be and the work that it is. Yeah, those those terms are terms of art, right? In 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 safety and in in process and organizations, and I've seen them mentioned a couple of times and have a vague understanding. But it would be great if you could dive into that a little bit. Um, so I don't know of any formal definitions. I do see it a lot in in different places, like high reliability organizational research, um, especially when it comes to the gap between how managers or, or different people at higher organizational levels on the blunt end versus the kind of sharp end where people are, are boots on the ground doing the work. You know, when, when you are far removed from almost any work, you probably have some idea in your head of how it's being done. And I imagine that's true of, you know, anything you encounter, right? Like I have some idea of, of how, you know, my house got built or how it got wired, and but it's, it's not complete. And if I were wanting to dictate to those groups of people who I don't have in any of the profession, narrowing that gap is, you know, something that's, that's highly recommended in those fields. But I don't know of a formal definition of those terms. And when we make software for people, we are totally making all these assumptions about how they do their work. Yeah. I mean, from speaking of like that whole bringing in an early career developer and getting them trained up to work on your team. Like for me, I feel like that process is a very interactive, very close relationship because you're you're learning what their basis is, what their baseline is, and, and then also trying to help them adapt to what the baseline of the company is. I feel like that's a has to be a very tight feedback loop because if you don't do that, then they're just going to flounder around without all that structure. Not just junior developers. I mean, I have 20 years of experience. When I come into a company, I'm happy if I'm productive after six months. Yep. People are yeah. like, oh, if you know JavaScript and React, then you're going to hit the ground running. Fuck that. I'm going to hit the ground running right into a wall. Good point. Yeah, uh, that, that would be the same for me. I think there is a lot of that that also goes unacknowledged, right? That how much of the organization and how much of the work does not necessarily involve the code level things, right? It's not Ooh. understand this function. It's understanding why is this function here? Why did it not get changed? Why did it get changed? You know, what were the time pressures? What were the production pressures? What were the, uh, you know, concerns for safety that may be preserved or eroded that, you know, created the state as, as you see it today as when you first join. And I think learning all those things takes time and ignoring that that's part of it is what leads to that, you know, six months or, or, you know, whatever the time may be. I don't think we can ever get rid of it, but I think not even acknowledging it, that there is an element of organizational comfort and adaptability that needs to occur is something that would help. Yeah. I've, I've always felt like people discount the amount of like the value of the institutional knowledge that you lose when a long serving team member leaves a team mm -hmm. and, and that, that, 
we think, oh, we'll just hire someone else at the same skill level and slot them in. And I'm like, ah, no, 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 no. <laughs> There's so much work to do to get them these this person back to the level that this other person was operating at. It, and, and also the team changes, the team dynamics changes. Like there's a lot of downstream effect that happens when you do that. Nancy uh, Levison does a lot with uh, NASA and her research at MIT. And she has some work about this and, and has gone over some of the accident reports for some of these spacecraft uh, losses for satellites and, and different things. And one of the things some of these reports cite is that problem of people who were well-versed in the organization and the systems leaving and having folks remaining who are just, they're strong at, at what they do, but they don't have the history of the organization. So there are certain things that they see and perhaps don't recognize. And at the same time, it's fun when you get a new person in and they do see things that everyone else recognizes so well that they don't even think about them. Yeah, I've actually started including that in my like in the sort of onboarding of people like uh, in the in the first months of their job. I'm saying you're you're still an outsider to our process. What looks weird here? What don't you yeah, understand? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. what? How can you feed that back to us because we stopped noticing it a year ago? Right, because one of the most valuable things that somebody in that role can contribute is that question that makes me as the experienced insider go, "I'm listening to the words that are about to come out of my mouth, and I realize how ridiculous they sound." <laughs> Because when you're when you work with someone long enough, you develop like so much shared language and understanding that you don't have to say those ridiculous words out loud. Right. You're like, you know, that class. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'll go change that class again. Ty, earlier you said something about a high reliability something something organization. Yeah. High reliability uh, organizational research. Oh, that. Yes. Yes. Uh, can you distinguish between reliability and resilience? Uh, so I don't recall how they formally defined it in the research. But to me, the difference between robustness and reliability and resilience is really that uh, resilience encompasses the uh, ability to continually adapt to something, that there is some capacity remaining to be able to adapt to change, whereas reliability might be consistently performing within the same state, you know, mm. given the same inputs, continually being able to do this. So a simple example might be, hey, if, you know, if you throw a, a, a ball to me at this speed in this way, I'm going to be always be able to catch it like that. But I may not have the capacity to adapt to if you do it faster or slower or left or right. And then robustness uh, I typically think of as being able to survive certain inputs, but not necessarily being able to adapt to them and respond differently. So I think of that a lot in physical materials. You know, a building might be robust and be able to survive an earthquake, but it certainly doesn't adapt. It's, you know, a bank vault can survive, you know, someone trying to break in, but then it might need repair. You know, it's still fulfilled part of the function, but there's some other thing that it maybe didn't do. And if you wanted to use it as an apartment, it would be really hard to bring in plumbing. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, there's no way, no easy way to adapt that. <laughs> Does that mean if, if a building is constructed in such a way that it has like really large chambers that are then broken up with easily replaced, like I don't know what the construction terms are, but but walls that you know that you can easily tear down and build new ones that aren't structural. 
does that mean that the building does have higher resilience so you can repurpose it from a business to apartments? The building plus the humans in that system has high resilience. Please welcome to the show, Afti Grimm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hi. Arriving a little late. I really appreciate that this show has the resilience to, uh, <laughs> to add me to the panel after the fact. And Sam, Sam, you were demonstrating that the, the as a human in the system, you have the resilience to welcome me in. Thank you. And this show has the robustness of many hosts. So chances are at least a couple of us show up every day, although it's not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> And we've tried to fix it by just adding more hosts, but it turns out that it actually requires coordination. Yeah, that just sort of increases the bystander effect. (laughs) I'm curious, in the EMT context, what does resilience look like? What does being prepared for unexpected events look like? For me, I think that experience was a lot of acknowledgement of we don't necessarily know what the next thing is going to be, right? That's kind of the literal definition of of the job when uh, you work for a service where People essentially call you when they don't know what to do, right? When someone calls 911, they're essentially communicating that they have reached the end of their capacity to adapt and they need intervention. But you can't know in advance, right, what sort of intervention that's going to be. So that looks like, I think, a combination of specialist training in, in, you know, how do you put in IVs? How do you give medication? But also generalist training in how do you know when to just get help? How do you know where to get help? What resources are available? Things like that. Is learning how to evaluate a situation part of that? I would definitely say so. Um, And I think that's true of of a lot of expert fields. You know, if you've ever uh, had that experience of, you know, fighting something or, or having, you know, logs scroll by and someone will look over your shoulder and just be like, oh, it's that, that lens of their expertise showing them that. And I think that over time, in any field, we do develop that that ability to kind of size up uh, the situation. Um, in the textbooks, that is actually one of the uh, steps that they they talk about when you, you get certified. It's actually a step they call scene size up, which is just to try to get a general impression of, you know, what is it that I'm I'm walking into? You know, is it, is it safe? So I should be going in? Is it dangerous? So I need to maybe not walk into it, get other people, things like that. What does scene size up look like in software? I think it depends a lot on the current mode of operation. So, you know, if I'm in a sprint planning meeting, scene size up is is very different than in an emergency. You know, if it's an emergency, it's, you know, I'm trying to figure out what is ultimately, you know, what is going on, how how bad is it, what might other consequences be of the given failure mode. So in, in software, by emergency, we're thinking like production incident. Yeah, absolutely. Could be something like that. Or, or again, if it's a different mode of you know, operation, I might be sizing up how uh, accessible our software is today versus where we want it to be. When you ask that question, Avdi, my initial response went to, oh, there's tools for um, code archaeology and there's tools to like see which classes change the most and code quality metrics and blah, 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 blah. And then I kind of like mentally hit myself because no, most of the relevant part of the scene is not in the code. The code is a great reference and it's awesome to have the power to be able to go there and find out what the system literally does in that situation. But the hard part is seeing who cares. Do you mean like users and stuff? Most especially within the organization like to find the ownership of the different systems and also users, but who's going to be affected by change in each part? 
and who's going to get mad at you? <laughs> Sorry, apparently I'm having a, a snarky, pithy kind of day. What I meant by that was, it seems like as people who work in software, what we're doing right now is we're all focusing on the aspects of our job that are immediate and relevant to us, like how we organize code, how we organize ourselves in response to incidents. And it feels like we're not really talking about the people that our systems are for. Because you could look at resilience as not doing the same thing. Like Ty said, reliability is about doing the same thing over and over. And resilience is more about continuing to be useful under varying circumstances. Yeah, and you can still have that second conversation about the organization itself and the people that it serves. So Ty, since you've since um, redeploy.io last August, and not long after that, you started your Resilience Roundup newsletter, what have you learned? Primarily, how much more I have to learn, how much history there is in, in these fields, too, how far back some of these concepts go and how much we still can learn in software and develop some of these ideas. Yeah, because this is a new field and it's even newer, like bringing it to software. This was the first, the inaugural redeploy.io last August in 2018. And I am hoping there are many more. Yeah, because it, it was really neat how um, half the talks were about people and half the talks were about code, and most of them integrated those one way or another. Because Oswald says resilience is in the humans. Right. A server sitting in a rack on its own does not have the capacity to adapt. In our continuing effort to be more resilient, we noticed that we failed to ask <laughs> important questions at the beginning of the episode. So now we will do this. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I'd say my superpower is uh, just the ability to remain calm in emergencies, whether they are medical or technical or otherwise. And I think I just acquired it through experience of seeing a lot of things go wrong. I imagine in, in software emergencies, now you get to say, well, nobody's dying here. I think that's definitely a helpful view, yeah. Actually, yeah, I'm curious about something you said in the intro that you started in tech and then you took a break from it and went to do EMT for a while. Did you have in mind coming back to tech at some point or were you just like, fuck this, I'm out? I think at the moment I did, it was pretty early in my career. So I hadn't been in, in tech especially long, but I had some opportunity to uh, work with some search and rescue volunteers and that required some EMT uh, training to be able to volunteer. And, and I got to watch some of those folks work and it was just really intriguing to me. So it was more drawn to that as opposed to saying, well, I'm going to leave tech for good. Uh, it was still something I was doing kind of on the side or, or on my own and following along with and still like writing code or, or doing different things. And so I never really, I guess, decided till when I left medicine, that was when I was more like, I'm leaving medicine. I'm going to tech as opposed to the other way. When you went back into tech, do you ever miss like the connection of actually seeing the people that you're helping? A lot. Um, and that was actually one of the things that drew me to it is that there is an element of, I think anytime you're working in the physical versus digital world, there is that ability to look and say like, this is what I did, you know, and, and see the effect as opposed to in the digital world, you know, as, as Richard Cook reminds us, we are interacting with the world through these representations. Um, so we're always very far removed from our systems. So it can be very difficult to see the, the benefits of our work. You know, often because of our technology, our, our users are far removed from us or far removed from our systems. Uh, so it can be hard at the end of the day to say, like, this is what I did. It's like, oh, I, from the outside, you know, if you put a video camera in, it's like, oh, you pressed keys on a keyboard. Were you playing a game? 
typing play. Like, you know, you can't tell, right? It's, it's indistinguishable. Whereas, you know, a lot of work in the physical world, you can easily see the result, right? Did you produce a thing or did you not? Is it well-crafted or is it not? Is someone healthier or are they not? Some people like front-end development because you can actually, like, see something that you make. Or you can you can do, like, LEDs and make cool objects. Yeah, I've always felt like there's this weird scale of, of realness for different types of coding and, and technical work in general. Like, I always felt like just writing little command line programs wasn't as real as a GUI program uh, just because you can see more of it. And same with hardware. Like if you're if you're messing with Raspberry Pi or an Arduino or something, it feels so much more real because it's right, right there in the physical world. And that's just been like a personal scale that I've sort of felt and, and not not a value judgment, but just a sense of it. So, Ty, what do you do to close that feedback loop? I'm not really sure. Um, I think it depends on, you know, the person and the organization. I think there's different ways to do it. So as an individual, I think knowing and reminding yourself what the impact of your work is can help that if that's a, p- a personal need to see, you know, the results of your work. If you feel very far removed from like the good effects, then I think focusing on or, or refocusing on what your work is allowing, enabling, or, um, you know, who you're, who you're serving through it. So kind of ask yourself, what couldn't happen if I wasn't doing this? Right. Or the reverse, even, you know, what bad things might occur had we not done this as far as, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe if your software helps people avoid bad outcomes. Yeah. I've always found like that's, that's also an interesting way to think about like, especially work in, in operations or on DevOps where you're like, largely your work is about preventing problems and it's hard to see problems that have been prevented. And so how do you make that value visible to people who aren't aware that, you know, you did all this work and therefore we had six months without any incidents or only three incidents. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a problem in, in almost all operations and an emergency response, right? Even, even in the physical world, right? I think that there, there's a whole area of different things, police, fire, medical, that a lot of folks don't think about. And, and that's the great thing is that they don't need to, you know, most of a given community world whatever locality doesn't need to worry about this whole system of what happens if if you get hurt you know you can rely on it fairly well and it succeeds and you don't really have to worry about the intricacies of it but i think that those are you know more obvious right because you know many of us have that experience of you know we we see the ambulances or you know we've been injured ourselves or we've had certain situations but yeah with that digital world of, of like devops transformations or or instant avoidance it is hard to communicate that to people who don't experience incidents. And maybe that's a value of having <laughs> incidents is that, that that reminds us that, you know, there are these, these outcomes that we have avoided in the past. I downloaded the field guide to human error today on my iPad. And I like, I highly recommend just get this sample and read the list of figures. You wouldn't guess that. But go back to the way beginning and read the list of figures because it's just a list of captions and they're all like super insightful. For instance, figure 15.2, Murphy's Law is wrong. What can go wrong usually goes right. And over time, organizations come to think that a safety threat does not exist or is not so bad. Yep, exactly. That's the erosion of that safety boundary, right? Where incidents remind us sometimes that that is a possible outcome. And the research supports that, that 
a lot of these high consequence areas are working you know, relatively very, very well. So over time, if we become overconfident that that is sort of intrinsic, that it'll continue to work very well, that is when we can be actually more risk for accidents. But then those accidents help us recalibrate and you know, maybe move back that safety boundary. I guess that's why the resilience engineering community puts a lot of focus on incident response and studying incidents response, because it's one of those times when all of those layers of safety that are preventing incidents are finally exposed. I definitely agree. I had uh, the privilege of hearing uh, Beth's long talk yesterday at uh, New Relic. And uh, she's been doing some great work with Richard and, and John and David and the snafu catchers. And that was something that, that she touched on as well, is that it's not that these folks are, you know, pessimists. They're not, you know, instant obsessed in the sense that, like, they want these to happen. But it is a way to look at these complex systems and dig into them because these systems are are so complex that you know we can't understand all of them and we can't keep them all in our head and we can't predict all these things but these incidents are a moment in time that we can now have kind of a foothold in to be able to ask questions and do that investigation that we might not normally have and the interesting part of the investigation, it isn't what went wrong. It's what stopped it from getting worse. What stops this from happening all the time? You can actually see the layers of humans and tools that are keeping the system up. Yeah, there was a, um interesting Twitter thread that I just stumbled across last week about the Challenger disaster. And there was a terminology that they used in there called normalization of deviance, where it's like things are specced to run, you know, within, say, 40 degrees and 80 degrees. But, you know, you launch at 38 degrees and it's fine. And then so you keep going and, th- and maybe 35 is OK. And then suddenly 35 is the new normal. It's the new lower bound. So maybe 34 is OK. And that's fine and fine and fine. You go, go for a decade without any problems until you finally hit that actual boundary point, which was 28 degrees for the Challenger disaster. And um, and that's when suddenly you realize that the actual boundary was up at 40 degrees and, and none of the testing had ever. And you've just out been lucky. Had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was, he also brought up the Columbia disaster where there had been 118 launches without foam shedding being a problem. And so that just becomes, oh yeah, it's just foam shedding. But that 118th time, you know, it cracked the wing and people died. And so like, I'm trying to, trying to use that terminology to think about like how that happens in my, you know, operations. That's a really good point. I think that happens in a lot of places. I think a common one outside of operations, just in our daily lives is in most cities, at least I, I know this is true uh, back home in Vegas is driving on the freeway. If you do the speed limit, you are the slowest thing on the road, right? <laughs> the, the speed limit, you know, on the sign is, you know, 65, right? But it's really, you know, the normal speed you drive is really like 70, 70 depending on where you are. Like, if, And then if you're so, then if you're going fast, you're now 20 over, right? And you're going for normal, you know, it's 10. And it, so it, it really can change what we expect. Some of that is cultural, though, because here in Portland, uh, sometimes I have to yell at people for not getting up to the speed limit. And let's not talk about following distance people. <laughs> and then there's how many cars are going to run the red light? Right. How yeah. many get through at the end? And, and I think that's a, a good point that it is 
cultural, right? Because that's what happens at organizations is that normalization is a cultural normal, normalization, right? It's not that some engineer sat down and, and did the math and said, oh, this is a fact of, of our material science or something that we could push this envelope. When it becomes that normalization of, of the deviance, it is purely culture. Yeah. And sometimes that's okay because what matters is that everyone's doing it the same. Like the cars at the green light know to wait until a couple cars have gone through before they start in certain cities. But then, yeah, when you come in from the outside, uh, it's like that developer who's like, well, I just changed this comment. And people are like, oh, no, no, you don't, you don't know how important that comment was. I think that touches on a great point, right? Is that it works for a time. It works in certain situations, right? That if everyone has that shared understanding, it can work. But there is still a boundary there, right? So certain people can run the red light sometimes. And that's why it can continue to occur is because it works most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And when it doesn't work, the ambulance comes. <laughs> I feel like there's a couple of layers to this. First off, there's realizing that there is a cultural difference at all between one place and another. Second off, there's uh, signposting that. Like uh, a couple of years ago, a Bloomberg recruiter tried to uh, approach me and pointed me at their website. And they, they have this quiz on the website that's, you know, trying to figure out if you're going to be a good person at Bloomberg. And they have this quiz that like, as you're looking at the questions, there's a little uh, progress bar ticking across showing that time is elapsing and that the time for you to answer this question is going to run out. And that was an extremely effective way of communicating what the culture at this place was going to be like. And I looked at that quiz and I was like, no, this is not for me. And then like, there's another layer beyond that, which is negotiating whether that's something you can change. And I feel like most organizations never even get to that second point. So I guess, well done, Bloomberg. Yeah. 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 At least they let you know. Uh, okay. Okay. So I, I, I also looked at the list of tables in the field guide to understanding human error. And there's only a few, but table 14.1 is, <laughs> is about stress coming from a mismatch between problem demands and coping resources. And one of these is organizational constraints and pressures. And that can be a source of stress, but it says that the coping reaction to that is organizational awareness of such pressures and constraints. So like when the organization acknowledges, look, yo, people are going to run the red light, watch out for it, then you can still proceed. Does that normalize that practice though? It explicitly, I think, makes a place for change. It says, we would like to change this, maybe. I mean, when you acknowledge it, then you're also acknowledging that this isn't perfect. I think you make a good point about the explicitness, too, because if it's not explicit, then the trade-offs that you make in service of some of these things are, you know, made at the sharp end over and over, right? As Cindy Decker reminds us often, that if the organization doesn't make this explicit, then each person has to decide for themselves, in each case over and over, you know, what are they serving? But if it's, if it is explicit, then some of the decision-making at least can be easier in that if the organization says that this is a priority, well, then between A and B, I know what to do. But if they don't, and I think that it's A, you think that it's B, maybe each time I make a decision towards one way or the other. And then each time I'm having to face that and think about it in potentially uh, a situation where I don't really have the room to be thinking about that. 
Yeah, there's that extra cognitive load to sort through that. And also, I think some of these things can become so internalized that it's actually very hard to discuss them. So when you have it written down a piece of paper, oh, yeah, we always ignore this alert for the first 10 minutes because, you know, it, it's very flappy. Like if that's written down, someone can come along and say, wait, 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 what the heck are we doing here? Whereas if it's just everyone in the back of everyone's mind, you never maybe never discuss it. And that's what your users are doing with your software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always tab through that box. We always put Jane Doe in this field. So how do you find out what's really going on at the sharp end? So I think it's important to ask questions, but the questions have to be sort of the, the right questions and the right environment. One thing I learned in emergency medicine is that the right questions can be really helpful. Um, you'll have people who call 911 and you'll show up and you'll basically you know, so, so what's wrong? And they will literally tell you, I'm sick. They will literally use the words, I'm sick. And of course, you know, as a practitioner, you have to avoid that, like, of course you are. Uh, <laughs> you know? I know. Uh, so, you know, there are um, questions that are kind of standard that we can kind of keep in our toolbox. You know, one of them is, okay, well, what made you call 911 tonight? What's different? But there's also a lot of research into a technique called the cognitive interviewing techniques that are often used as well uh, to help with this. Tell us more about that. These are a series of techniques that were uh, developed, I believe, in the mid-80s originally by two psychologists who started with this idea of, I think they use the basis of like how, how memory works and we're trying to figure out, so then how can we get better information um, from people who witness things, uh, whether that was police or, or otherwise, you know, how can we get this information out of them? We know they saw it. We, we know they have it somewhere in their head. And they came up with four core, what they call mnemonics. And it's kind of funny because oftentimes when you look at them, they seem like really obvious. And one of the, the key ones is to ask an open-ended question and don't interrupt. Oh. Mm. I, I actually just saw uh, some data on this about doctors when they were talking to patients. And like often they'll sit down and say, okay, well, you know, why are you in the office today? And then they'll say something like, I'm sick or whatever. And and they found that doctors would interrupt after like 18 seconds. They'd be like, no, 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 just tell me about your leg or whatever. And they, and they found that if they would just let the patient talk for another 30 or 40 seconds, all the information that they needed would come out. And that just having that patience to, to bring that, to let that come out and probably give you more information than you were originally asking for was really important. Also makes the patients feel a lot more satisfied with their care. And I think you touched on um, the other part of that, which is that getting the information that you you really want that you may not even know about to ask, giving someone that room to tell you about it. One of the uh, other techniques in cognitive interviewing is to ask the person and just to encourage them to tell you everything about the event, whether or not they think it's important. Um, because often we can set up these sort of interview contexts where, you know, if you're asking a very pointed question, I'm trying to get you the answer that I think you want, or the person, you know, doing the interviewing is really trying to dig at a very precise thing, but there's all this potentially relevant information uh, that you may not know to ask about, or, uh, you know, I may not know to report, but if, if you ask people to, you know, report everything and give them that space, oftentimes you'll learn a lot of those other things. Like, oh, I'm so glad that came up. 
Uh, what I find interesting about it is that a lot of these techniques are actually supported by research. There's a lot, there is a lot of debate about uh, different population groups and whether it's effective because some of this stuff is used uh, for, you know, is it suitable for court? Can, is it okay for children to be interviewed that way? Is it okay for different populations? You know, is it effective for people who think in different ways who might be non-neurotypical? And then there's all these bodies of research. You know, is it adversarial? Should it only be used, you know, in certain contexts? And, and most of the research seems to indicate that it is useful. And since it is not adversarial, um, it can fit in a lot of, a lot of cases. Interestingly, a lot of the research comes from Britain because I don't know what level, but it's essentially the, endorsed method of interviewing by the British police. So a lot of the studies come from those sorts of, of contexts because they're always doing it. They have this context of, of they're always, you know, using this interview and they have all these people they're putting through training. So they get to re-examine this process quite a bit. Note to self, if I'm going to get arrested, do it in Britain. Interesting. A lot of the complaints if you if you look at some of the research, some of the complaints that officers have in using these techniques is they feel pressured to do the cognitive interview. And that's actually one of the things that later research, uh, they try to back off is that really there's not a cognitive interview, that really these are a toolbox of techniques. And it really emphasizes the human aspect. They eventually made the enhanced cognitive interview and enhanced makes it sound like, oh, we're going to add all these techniques. And basically the techniques were like, no, adapt to the situation do whatever makes sense in the moment. So if, if there is a technique that doesn't make sense with that person, don't use it. Or if, if you think one might be more effective, then use that and adapt to the person you're interviewing. And it was kind of funny that they had to go back in the early 90s and be like, no, pay attention to the situation, pay attention to the person that you're interviewing and make a point to have some sort of rapport with them and, and pay attention to what they're saying. Uh, because they were finding that in a lot of cases, people were now using these tools as a checklist and getting frustrated if they couldn't get through all of them. Oh, I didn't, I didn't use, you know, uh, technique three. So I, I didn't do the whole thing. And if I can't do the whole thing, well, there's never time to do it. So I, I won't Ooh, use so like these tools. So like design patterns in code. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them all in. Use them all, Yes. Yes, yeah, so there's level one, can you use the technique? Level two, should you use the technique? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm not sure. I know the NTSB teaches these techniques as well for accident investigation. It's like cognitive interviewing Pokemon. Yay! Gotta catch them all. Yep, that was actually something they had to continually refute and emphasize in, in later research was that you don't have to use them all. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that people were using it as a checklist. Checklists can be useful for safety to a point, but uh, yeah, John Elspaugh was talking to me about this the other day. There's a point at which checklists make you less safe because you're not paying attention the same way. Right. If the checklist gives you the idea that you've done all the right things and maybe you have, or, or the checklist is a mask over a large amount of complexity, I think a lot of the more uh, popular knowledge around this comes from Atul Gawande's work in the Checklist Manifesto. And, and he talks about that, where checklists are, are a good fit for those things that can be kind of encompassed within a relatively short list of discrete tasks. You know, the uh, pre-surgical things, some of the flight things, but things that mask 
a lot of complexity maybe aren't a good fit. You know, you can't have a checklist item that says, did you make sure all the things worked? You know, people will just, just say yes. They'll just say yes and they'll just check it. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same with, with software because you can write reliable software and you can add layers of Kubernetes and restarting and back pressure and blah, 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 blah. And you can get robustness. You can get software that stays up and you can get software that does the same thing. But if you want resilience, you can't get that with just software. So a theme I'm hearing repeated again and again in the last couple of minutes is that you can teach a technique. And in the process of teaching a technique, it tends to get formalized so that you can teach other teachers how to teach it. So as you're learning the technique, it helps to, you know, go through that formal process of like, there's this, 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 and this. And then at some point you have to sit with it, integrate it think about it and figure out how to adapt and actually use it effectively. You can't just spew out the thing and you're done. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the steps of, um, you know, along the the learning ladder where you, that's conscious competence, unconscious competence, where it's like you just did, uh, you know, you, you learn the thing, but you have to just explicitly follow these steps. You always copy and paste this line into the terminal to fix problem B. And then like slowly you work up to the point of actually understanding what's going on and being told, able to adapt that into like actually fixing your problem or understanding why the problem is happening in the first place. Absolutely. And I think that's something that's missing in a lot of software incident response. You know, we have some, you know, really well-trained folks who are, are really good at their craft of software. But oftentimes we put them in a situation and we never really tell them what they should do at the moment the pager goes off. And oftentimes there's a lot of focus in, oh, well, senior engineer making sure they know this or that, but it's not, you know, there's no more Go or C or other code to teach them. Often it gets overlooked in giving them that even initial process of what to do you know, from the moment the pager goes off. And I think that's where uh, some of the things like the ICS system, the incident command system that FEMA uses and PagerDuty and some others have adapted uh, become helpful because they give you that initial steps of, okay, this is what I do as a responder and then allow you to build off that. But I think we often skip that step in software so we don't give people that opportunity very easily to build those later steps. Sweet. So at the end of the show, we like to go into reflections, which is uh, basically talking about the things that have come to us, the new ideas, the interesting things that we're going to chew on for a while after the show. So I wanted to see what uh, y'all had for reflections. I have a short one. There was one phrase that stood out early that I wanted to come back to, which was part of resilience is how do you know where to get help? Like when to ask for help and who to ask, because that can it just gives you a lot of options. I actually think the um, the cognitive interviewing idea, I'm going to read the, some of the links that, that have been posted to that information because I think that will be useful just in general as far as being able to talk to people and get more information out of them, not necessarily in an incident context, but just in general. Well, I think in addition to the uh, observation I made a few moments ago about actually having to apply things that you learned and think about them, um, the other thing that really sticks out for me in this conversation is uh, this idea of being explicit and deliberate about thinking about process and communication as a thing that you can get better at, that you can work on, that you can talk about. 
And uh, appropriate or not, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to plug a RailsConf track that I am curating. If you happen to be planning to go to RailsConf already, it would be great if you would go to the Working with Other Humans track. It's going to be an all-day thing with some amazing talks about how to think about emotions as state machines and how not to be a jerk and how to talk to other people and maybe even how to be more effective at management. And it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so there. RailsConf this year is April 29 to May 1st in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Ty, do you have a reflection or some? I don't think I'm ever going to forget the phrase now, cognitive interviewing Pokemon. And <laughs> I, I win! Everywhere I can throw that phrase in, I'm going to. <laughs> now we're going to have to give them names. And I'm going to think a lot more about some of the things that Sam brought up about you know, how we can work with other people in, the, in these different ways. And just even thinking already about emotions as a state machine, I think is is really interesting. And it's interesting to see different lenses be applied, right? It, it feels like a, a lot of the same thing, you know, applying emergency medicine to software, applying software lenses to these other things and, and making these cross-domain links so that they can make sense to us or we can improve either side of it. If you're interested in those sort of interesting cross-area metaphors, I also have a talk that I've been giving for a couple of years now called Hacking Your Emotional API. And um, I've, I think I've done it about 13 times now. Oh. I've just got back from uh, RubyConf Australia to do it. But you can see a video at uh, emotionalapi.com. Sweet. Ty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, folks. And if you like this conversation, you should come to patreon.com and give a dollar or something at least to greaterthancode.com. Actually, you should give more than a dollar, but just a dollar will get you an invite to our private Slack channel. And then you can come to the Greater Than Code Slack and you can talk with us and our guests and, and everyone is very nice to each other. And we have channels like Random and Overheard and things I want to tweet but won't. So you should join us. 